In the Dark is a live, immersive surround sound experience which brings to life the dramatic turning points in the lives of five people who are blind or visually impaired. It's based on the real lives of stories, real life stories of the actors, stories of adversity, adventure and determination. Brought to you by the people behind Sightless Cinema, In the Dark is the group's first fully live performance. It goes on tour to Dreacht in Blanchardstown this October the 19th and 20th after a successful run at Rua Red in Tala last June. With me in studio this evening, director Kieran Taylor and one of the actors involved in In the Dark, Michael Lavell. Uh, delighted to have both of you here, Kieran and Michael. Uh, first of all, uh, Kieran, maybe because I think we spoke about um, Sightless Cinema previously, so you might remind listeners about what Sightless Cinema is and, and what your idea behind it was, and then we can move on to what you're doing with this live show, Live and Dangerous. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, this is an idea I came up with, uh, it was 2015, I think, um, and uh, the idea is to work in a collaborative, collaborative process uh, with people who are blind and visually impaired to create and devise together radio dramas that we present then in surround sound in cinemas. So the idea is everybody comes to the cinema, but there are no pictures and you're yeah. immersed because they've got a surround, lovely surround sound systems in the in the cinema and you're in the middle of the story. And we found that re- works really well and it means that blind and sighted audience can share the same experience and talk about it in the same way because uh, it's all, all the pictures are, are in their heads, you know. Yeah. And, and for you, Michael, did you become involved uh, as an actor from the outset or did you actually attend Sightless Cinema and experience it as a, an audience member to start out with? Well, Sean, I attended it as an audience member initially. And that was in about 2016, 2017 uh, at the Lighthouse Cinema up in Smithfield. Mm. But then um, I felt I had, in a number of years ago, as involved with the National League of the Blind, we had done some drama. So I thought, gosh, this this sounds interesting. Mm. So I I, uh, I contacted Kieran and uh, sort of the rest is history. And and <laughs> but that that night when you first went as a just as simply as an audience member. What was that experience of being in in that community, you know, the communal experience that you have in a cinema of people around you hearing and experiencing the same emotions and hearing the same stories? What was that feeling? Well, it's it's amazing because, you see, if you recall back some years ago in the States, they tried out this idea of dining in the dark where blind people were actually operating a restaurant and they brought sighted people in. It, it it balances the whole thing out. It, it's a level playing field. So you 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 you're actually uh, there's no there's no difference. It's it's the whole thing is leveled out. And we found that that uh, people who were sighted had the same experiences and they hadn't got the same sort of things coming in, in their in their in their line of vision. Mm. They were they were just totally done by by audio. And and this is this is where I think is a huge. Advantage. Yeah. So everybody's having that same experience, experience and, yeah, and that, that that's what's very positive about it. So not content with having people sit in a cinema, um, uh, either for those who are either blind or visually impaired and possibly for those who are sighted, then closing their eyes to try to experience or, or put on a blindfold, I suppose, to try to experience, get, get a similar experience. You're now going to do the event live. What madness gripped you on this one, Kieran? <laughs> well, 
Yes, I don't know. And there's a, there's a cast of uh, 11. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's been fun. But it, I mean, we, we've spent, uh, this, this was meant to happen in, in 2020. So we had a so couple of years of hiatus. were meant to happen yeah. in 2020. Uh, so we went online for a couple of years and mm. we recorded uh, a, a couple of dramas there uh, that we released online. Uh, but um, the live show was always in the background and we had some support from the Abbey Theatre early on with their 5 by 5 scheme. Um, but uh, so it, it, it was a, a lot of working out, but gradually we decided on five stories and then um, uh, and people sort of told the stories. We experimented with how they were to be, t- mm. to be told. And eventually then I pulled together uh, a, a script, you know, that that includes a, a huge amount of sound effects. So, th- so the cast are making all of the, the sounds live in the yeah. room. And we have a musician as well, Roger Gregg, uh, who's on guitar. So it's very cinematic. Um, so w- when you're in the room and you're wearing a blindfold, um, the sounds can come from anywhere in the room because the cast are all around the outside and right. the audience are in the centre. So it's not, it's not just that you have four big speakers and a wonderful sound design going on. It's actually that the cast members are around the walls. Yeah, of the yeah. It's an analogue version of the digital <laughs> idea, you know. So, uh, you know. So in, in your case then, Michael, it's not just a matter of, well, I have to learn my lines and say those. There, there's all of these other sound effects and things that you're doing. Uh, I presume like an old fashioned radio play. And I'm sure sounds that are made with things that you think how on earth could that sound exactly. like that what a, exactly. can you think of an example of maybe something that you're doing in the, in that sound effects department that you're surprised how the sound of it is well, made well there's one very interesting thing which when I started last week with Kieran to try out was a, a sound of a, a piece of it's like a, a piece of sacking with cl- with like hay in it yeah. and you can squeeze it over and back and it's like three people walking along and their yeah. footsteps it's brilliant you know but I always had an interest in that so I think going back years even the sound of you know making the, making the sound of a horse trotting or I just didn't sort of always interested me you know So you, you had an interest in the sound side of I things I did yes I always had an interest in the sounds and what, what could you what could you do with sound you know what, and Din Kieran I think has kind of kind of, kind of got that interest more, more in me now that I'm more inclined to think how could we do that in other words it's, it's far too simple to record a train could we not pay, make the noise or even the motorbike why, yeah. why do we record a motorbike when we can produce it ourselves yeah, well, well, we Ma- Michael might demonstrate he actually does a mean uh, Harley Davidson <laughs> yeah. uh, you know as part of the <laughs> yeah, can, can, you, can you give us your Harley Davidson well, uh, yes uh, not, to, not to take away from the play now but this, this is just the not as good a part it's better in the play <laughs> <laughs> I tell you now, Michael Lavin, with the, with the Harley Davidson, uh, you have a you have a career as a foley artist for sure. Um, and and what what year of a Harvey Davis model is? But that's Harvey Davis now to be decided. I'm, I'm I'm going to have to look up a bit of re- it's, it's yeah. actually a Harley trike, you know. Well, yeah. Trike, sorry, yes, that's right. One of the scenes happens, uh, and uh, the the there's uh, one of the characters is on the back of a trike, you know, with his wife, and we also have a wind machine, like an old fashioned foley wind machine. So there's somebody cranking up this this uh, big, big mm. um, rotating uh, drum uh, and and then yeah. we have we have a guy walking in a in a in a gravel pit he has a box of gravel you know for the the feet on the ground so everything is done manually which is part of the fun yeah, that of is the actually thing, that is know? not just a recorded effect that you, yeah, somebody exactly. presses play and, yeah, and off yeah. it goes and i'm i'm not going to tell people how you made that sound <laughs> michael because that's part of the joy the, the magic of the trade is that we don't um, divulge, isn't it? That's true. Right, now, coming to your own story, uh, Michael, um, 
you might explain uh, the, the situation with your site and, and a very specific moment that caused initially great excitement. Yes. Back in 1990, or sorry, 1980, I, I, had been, well, I had been always attending the Eye and Ear Hospital in Dublin because I always had very poor sight. So then I actually was, in 1980, I was attending the matter and the consultant suggested that maybe I might consider mm. having a coronagraph. Now, the coronagraph is a means that the person would donate the cornea and then they would implant the cornea in the eye. So I said, what were the odds of success? And he says, about 50-50. And I says, well, I'm not a betting man, so I think I might leave it. And if it, if, it fa- if there was failure, it could be that you would lose all, all sight. even Because exactly. you, you, you had limited vision. That's correct. That, yeah. that was the worry. So then five years later, things had improved. And now he said the odds were 90%. So, of course, at that stage, yeah. then I says, well, here goes. That's you know. that, those are better odds. Let's have a listen to the clip, which is, I think, it's at the, po- the point in the play when you know that the, the transplant is available to you and you're very excited about what might be in front of you if this operation, if you're, if you're in that 90% part of the, of the statistic. Um, so this is Michael Lavin's story and with Michael himself, you've just heard there, Michael, performing. Well, I nearly fall over pulling on my trousers. I rush down the stairs, hand along the wall to the phone. I'm 10 years in Dublin. But I grew up on a farm in Roscommon, where I was happy among the cows and chickens. I always had very poor sight, and it continues to deteriorate. My consultant suggests that I have a cornea transplant. Going down on the train through Kildare and Carlow, seeing vague blurs passing by, which I imagine are trees, I think to myself, when I come back, this will all be changed. I'll be able to see those trees. I'll be able to get rid of this white stick to hell. I'll be able to see the slitter in Crow Park. Oh God, this is great. This is the beginning of the rest of my life. So that's Michael Lavin uh, telling his own story as part of In the Dark, uh, which is a, a development of the Sightless Cinema Project. Uh, Michael is with me in studio as his director uh, of the project as well. Uh, what's amazing in that clip, Michael, is that we hear the chickens in the background. <laughs> incidentally, congratulations to that part. Member, those members of cast, we heard the music in the background. But what I really pick up is on the sense of hope you yes. had. Yes. Like everything was going to change. What actually happened? Uh, what happened was that I could see great for about a week and then I began to get this feeling of things weren't quite as clear, like uh, like I'm looking through steam. And then it just began to deteriorate. And what happened actually, in effect, was that the while the operation was a success, the new cornea was perfect, but the optic nerve failed. Right. And that the emotion of that experience, I mean, the roller coaster of that experience. So for really for for a week for one week of your life to date, you had perfect vision. Were well, uh, to me, it was perfect. Now, in all honesty, it was about 20%, I was told, of what we called normal sight. Right. But for me, it was it So was you saw, did you see people? I did. I saw lights. I saw clocks. I saw my nephews living down in Waterford. I saw um, the actual names and people's lapels, that type of thing, which I couldn't get over people's faces. And the experience then of losing it, your sight now, did it go back to more or less where it was before the operation? No, it went completely. It was gone totally. Yeah. And was it worth, in your mind, was it worth that week? Was it worth that effort? It was in 
because Sean at the time my, my my sight was getting worse, firstly, and then the the cornea, which was which had a problem, was in liable liable to become infected. So I I had nothing to lose really. All the, the difference was how soon I would be fully blind. Yeah, yeah. But so um, this 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 kind of initiation that happened for sooner, but that was the only. So there was I never regretted it really. Yeah. So I suppose there are two there are two sides to the story. I'm sure that's part. I'm sure that's part of what you you tell in the performance that's as well. Yeah. And, Four and, other. Uh, sorry, he, he, yeah. There's a, there's a part in the play actually when he does have his sight. You know, his his girlfriend, his then girlfriend, comes to <laughs> visit him, and he actually sees her face for the first time. So that's a really lovely moment. Oh you know. lord. Yeah. Who subsequently became his his lovely wife. wife. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, that is a that is an absolutely beautiful <laughs> moment. It must have been extraordinarily special, Michael. Yeah, it was. Yeah, uh, you're telling four other stories as well. Maybe you give us a brief outline of those, Carol. Yeah, yeah. Um, we have uh, Kathleen who had a hard time with the medical profession, where uh, she was going blind. Her doctor brought, or her father brought her to a consultant, you know, because she couldn't she couldn't see the blackboard mm. in school and that, and. Um, he, he just sort of dismissed and said, you know, um, she she's just backward, you know. Um, and in in fact, then she wasn't, she, she, she was, there was a delay getting treatment and she ultimately lost her sight yeah. as well, you know. Uh, so sometimes uh, people can can confront confront difficulties like that. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, in, in all of the stories, we see how people have overcome have all of that as well us. and they carry yeah. on and they yeah. and, and they're, they, 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 they make something um, of their lives in the end. There's a story of um, Tom who um, lost his sight very suddenly at the age of 50. It was a hereditary um, disease that he didn't know anything about um, and within a month he had gone blind. Uh, he went, he used to work on the building sites as a, as a site supervisor on big, you know, mm. big projects um, and he, he tells the story of um, you know arriving on the site uh, it was just after the Christmas holidays he'd lost his sight sort of over the Christmas holidays and uh, he was trying to explain to his boss who just said you're gone you know leave, yeah, leave right. your, your, your laptop and he didn't work again after that now sadly um, um, Tom who was involved with the show he actually died shortly afterwards he was very he was very yeah. um, so we were very sad to lose him yeah. but he he was very enthusiastic about bringing the show telling on telling the story and yeah the story, the so story we've recast from, from one of the other members of the group so, yeah. so we're still telling his story which is in there you know and, and, and you have a great con man as well in Paul Norton yes <laughs> yeah yeah so he um, was uh, yeah he was he was going blind he he, uh, he used to love ringing into radio st- stations and he um, he got picked up by Jerry Ryan who would then send him <laughs> off as the you know the voice of the common man as, as a reporter um, and uh, in, in, in one of the clips that you have there he, he, he's yeah. reporting from the National Gallery um, <laughs> Well he, I tell you it, 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 I, I, I don't have time to play that now but it is hilarious that he managed to do a full report on radio as if he was looking at the painting um, when in fact he was just Telling big fat fibs. Uh, yes, yeah. He, he he was he was describing the, this this Caravaggio that had been discovered and was being unveiled in the National Gallery uh, on live radio. But of course, he did, couldn't yeah. see it at all. He, he'd gotten a description from a, a librarian friend of his. <laughs> and why not if you can manage it? Okay, well, listen. It sounds like a lot of fun, and thanks both for coming into us. That's Kieran Taylor. Actor Michael Lavin in the dark comes to Drake and Blanchardstown this October 19th and 20th. The immersive surround sound experience brings to life the dramatic turning points in the lives of five people who are blind or visually impaired. Stories, uh, uh, as I said, that you can find out more about by visiting the website, which is drecht.ie.
There was speculation in some quarters that the man now known as Charles III might opt when it came to it to style himself in some other way, such as the unfortunate history and resonance attached to the name King Charles. The unfortunate Charles in question is, of course, King Charles I, who was deposed and executed by the Puritans led by Oliver Cromwell in 1649. Act of Oblivion, the latest historical novel from Robert Harris, begins in 1660 when the monarchy had been restored, but the events of 11 years previous haunt the novel and its central protagonists. While the monarchists are back in power, vengeance for the so-called regicides is the order of the day. These are the men who orchestrated the execution of the king, who in most cases signed his death warrant. Two of them, real people called Colonels Wally and Goff, formerly of the New Model Army, have fled to Puritan-friendly America, but justice in the form of a fictional senior monarchist called Richard Naylor is in hot pursuit, or as hot as can be, in 17th century. John Self has been reading Act of Oblivion for us by Robert Harris, and he, he joins us now. Um... You know, there's a kind of an aspect to this story when you hear uh, about Puritan America uh, and that side of it. You think, where is Robert Harris going to find the colour in in all of this? But these are real life uh, executioners. So give us a sense of who Goff and Wally were. Goff was the son-in-law, wasn't he? Who, Who were these two men? Yeah, yeah, that's right, Sean. Yeah, so Goff was the son-in-law of Edward Wally. They were, and they were, as you say, two of the men who were involved or considered to be guilty of high treason for having signed the death warrant for uh, for King Charles I. So the Act of Oblivion, the title, by the way, comes from the the act that was passed by Charles II to essentially have a clean slate after mm. after Cromwell's rule and essentially to forgive people except those men who signed the warrant for the execution. They were to be pursued to the death. Um, so Wally and Goff. Uh, they were real people. I mean, you can you can certainly look them up if you like, and uh, you probably wait until you finish the book until you do that because you might find out uh, what happens. But they were uh, they were Puritans. They were uh, anti-royalists, and uh, so they whenever they were suddenly under pursuit by the the restored royalty, then uh, they had to flee to to America where their their sort of Puritan compatriots, as it were, um, could hide them. So that is the history aspect of what uh, Robert Harris is doing in the book. But he invents as well, and specifically, he invents the character of Richard Naylor. Uh, how essential is that to giving the book, I suppose, a little bit of daring do and a little bit of dramatic tension? Well, it is It is essential. I mean, uh, Naylor, Richard Naylor, he rejoices in the title of a secretary of the Regicide Committee of the Privy Council. So he's the, the go-to man for all things to do with hunting down those who are did responsible a, for the... Did such a committee exist? Not, not that I'm aware of, but uh, but but who knows? I mean, I mean, essentially, he serves two purposes in the book. You know, mm. First, he's a he's a point of focus for the royalist cause. So we can you know, invest either our hopes or our fears in him, depending on how we feel about it. And he becomes a sort of a lightning rod for that side of the battle. But he's also, you know, from Robert Harris's point, of view is a very convenient fiction. It makes him uh, very easy for him to have one man against two rather than a sort of, you know, the realistic ragbag of, of characters that may have been made the pursuit in real life and harder to, for the reader to focus on. I mean, it's a complex story, but it has mm. to have some simplicity to help the reader. And uh, are, are we, whose side are we on? Or is Robert Harris on one or other side? Is, on, is he on the side of the fugitives or is he on the side of the pursuant? Well, uh, I mean, it's it's hard to say. I mean, my sense is he's probably more on the side of the of the royalists, uh, the, the pursuers, you know. And in fact, uh, I think he's 
he, he portrays Charles I as a sort of a heroic figure for the, the quiet and humble way he goes to his death. You know, Charles I right. uh, was executed in uh, it was January. It was a cold day, but he, he wore two vests because uh, he didn't want to shiver because he thought his supporters might think he was frightened. You know, um, so the but I think uh, Robert Harris is, you know, he, it's. He has said, in fact, in an interview that he, you know, he he believed himself to be more of a Puritan, but actually he ended up more of a royalist after writing the book because he he defined himself by what he was against rather than what he was for. You know, the religious extremism of the Puritans, their narrow-mindedness. He said reminded him of the Taliban smashing statues. Um, but as of course, you know, irrespective of what you think about them, the the way he structured the book is quite clever because the. In the cat and mouse game, you know, it's the Puritans who are the mice who are being pursued, and you can't help but have a certain amount of sympathy for them, even if you don't don't necessarily feel sympathy for them. And and Naylor himself does have very, you know, I think Harris has spoken about this idea of Naylor really having great highs and great lows in in the process of this pursuing that he's involved in. Yeah, I mean Naylor. I mean he's well. The first thing to say that he's he's an absolute zealot. He's just as much of a zealot as the uh, and committed to his cause as the Puritans. Mm. And he's almost a sort of superhuman, endless reserves of will and energy to pursue Wally and Goff, uh, even when it seems hopeless. But then there are these periods of despair. You know, I don't know if they are, as you say, as depressive episodes. Um, uh, the, but they also help to punctuate the story and emphasise the difficulty of the task he set himself. And of course, there are all sorts of you know, disorders and, and neurodivergent conditions that we have names for now. We didn't have hundreds of years ago, but that doesn't mean people didn't suffer from them. So it adds a little bit of emotional texture too. And and when he arrives in America then, um, what kind of, uh, this is when Naylor arrives in, in, in America, what kind of help or what kind of leverage does he have in, in that particular part of the world, given the, the, the puritanical nature of those who were there? Well, as you say, not not a lot, because, um, of course, this is all taking place before the American War of Independence, so the states mm. are still technically under English rule, but there's a schism there which led to the colonies being set up in the first place, and, you know, Naylor does his best to, to browbeat them with threats of suffering at the hand of the king, hands of the king and his supporters, but they certainly don't roll over and accept. I mean, they're just as dedicated to their own cause as he is to his, and uh, so they, you know, they harbour the men, they they move them from you know, from Boston to New Haven, from house to house, and they certainly don't cooperate in any way, the, the local governors with uh, with Naylor. And does this give um, uh, Harris a chance really to look at the political situation in America at that time as much as anything else? Yeah, it does. I mean, there's, uh, you know, uh, as I say, the, the, the colonies in America set up because people didn't believe that, you know, that the Puritans didn't believe that... Uh, the religion was being run the right way in England. Um, not everyone there is a Puritan. You know, there's some who are loyal to the king, which uh, which which presents a little bit of internal tension there. Uh, but there's a lot of power play here. You know, in England, the royalists are in the ascendant. The families of Wally and Goff have to move house. One of their friends is captured. In America, the Puritans hold sway. They're busy trying to harbour the Wally and Goff, but also trying to convert the local, what we'd now call Native Americans, what they call Indians, you know, to their cause. So uh, there's an awful lot of, of the sort of uh, the, the politics and religious politics of the time in the book. And, and I suppose really what we're what we're looking at when you look at an historical novel, you, it's always stated that you know when somebody writes about the past, they're all they're also writing to the present moment as well. What parallels did you see in particular? I suppose there are the two sections, you know, the, the post the execution of a king, and I suppose more particularly the America of today. Is that echoed in some way in the America of the puritanical period? Oh, very much so. I mean, you don't have to look very hard for, for those parallels. You know, there's, what you have here are two sets of people who are absolutely ideologically opposed to one another. You know, they, they'll go to their grave in the absolute certainty that they were right in both in both sides. Um, uh, you know, the Puritan streak still 
plays a big part in American politics. Just look at the you know the fervor on abortion and other social issues. Um, you know, there's a line where someone says something like, "Oh, merely because one wishes to believe in a thing doesn't follow that it's true," which you know seems very apt in our age of you know fake news and conspiracy theories. And uh, other parallels too. You know, Naylor near the start of the book he says he never really thought that the army would actually go ahead with the execution of the king. He was relying on those constitutional norms, the checks and balances that we we have seen stretched to twanging point by. Donald Trump or Boris Johnson, you know. So, so I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah. Extreme beliefs make it feel very modern indeed, even though it's set what three hundred and fifty years ago. Uh, what about um, in terms of clearly, we've spoken about Wally and Goff, we've spoken about Naylor, and we've spoken about the death of a king. Goff and, and Wally both had wives back in in England. Did we do we get much of their story? Do we get ma- many female characters in the book? Uh, well, uh, not a lot, unfortunately. Um, I mean, the, the, it starts off actually quite well. You know, the, the wives early are featured early on. You know, and the trying to, to shield their children from from the consequences of what their fathers have done. But uh, unfortunately, it doesn't really last. And uh, I think there's a large dramatis persona at the start of the book, and I think there's about fifty men and only about five or six women. So, of course. You know, Robert Harris could say, well, historically, men were dominant in society then, so there's there's the historical accuracy to take into part. But then, you know, if you're going to completely invent one of the three central characters in the book, you may as well mix things up and yes, maybe have a, a woman in a pivotal role or somewhere in the plot. Yes, you, we, can't we argue, that, so. you can't argue totally around the historical accuracy side of things. Yeah. However, does it work? Because I guess what we're looking at here is, you know, does it entertain at one level and does it provoke thought in and around our contemporary situation at another. How did it work for you overall, uh, John, the act, act of oblivion from Robert Harris? I think it worked pretty well. You know, it's pretty tense, uh, sometimes a little bit repetitive maybe. You know, there's an awful lot of Wally and Goff moving from house to house and, you know, Naylor pursuing them. It does pick up a lot more action in maybe in the last 80, 100 pages. Um, some interesting gore and flashbacks to what the Puritans did to the Royalists, which too helps tip the balance. They get a little bit against Wally and Goff again. Um, and uh, some interesting thoughts, you know, about, for example, the... You know, Wally and Goff are facing up to the fact that they're potentially going to be chased by Naylor until either they die or he does. You know, they're going to miss their children growing up. They'll be in hiding forever. So what kind of escape have they really achieved? So worth it, worth worth the read, is, I think is what so, you're yes. saying. Yeah. Keeps the pages turning, certainly. Keeps the pages turning, John Self. Speaking to us there about the latest offering from Robert Harris, it is called Act of Oblivion. Kiara Conway is a Shanno singer and tradition musician from Galway. Her album Queen was released earlier this year. The album is sung entirely in Irish with a mixture of traditional Irish world music tunes and original compositions. Kiara is performing at various locations around the country at the moment, including at the National Concert Hall on October the 26th as part of the Tradition Now series of concerts. But right now, to Kiara Howell, the studio, Cahar Nagalieva. Gajasve, go will to Ling Anok, Kiara Falshroth, and Clower. Right. This, this, I, I love the kind of the idea of what you're doing here with Queen because it is taking the old fashioned or the old style lament, I suppose. And I, I, are you injecting something in there or did you want to inject something new in, in, into it? What was the idea behind the album, Cara? Well, the, the, the background to Queen, the album, um, is, is an interesting one for me, anyways, because, um, 
I am primarily a visual artist. I've been a visual artist for the last 22 years and I learned that I could sing around 10 years ago. And because I was working as an artist, it was an interest to me to see how I could use my voice and how I could use song in my art commissions. And at the time, I was really interested in loss, um, looking at how we as individuals, our communities um, express and cope with loss in response to situations like migration or loss of language or or personal Mm. loss like death. Um, And also the environmental crisis, the many losses that we have in our lives. Um, So within each project that I was working on, I was drawing upon the traditional canon of Nequinta. We have a great tradition of Queena in Ireland. Um, I was looking at the role of the Bam Queena in communities um, and how laments were composed primarily by women. Um, And also because I'm interested in world music, I was looking at traditions across the world as well and seeing the similarities. And then I also started Mm. entering the world of composition, so composing new laments as well. So after 12, 13 years, I had this collection of laments um, that I had learned and performed in a a more contemporary art context. And I felt it was time to record them and bring them together in an album. And that's how Queen came about. I mean, it's an extraordinary. I mean, you you didn't just discover, I'm presuming, (laughs) 10 years ago that you could sing. I did. I did. I know people ask me, how is that possible? But it is possible. And it's strange even to me that you... Uh, you or me or anybody might have uh, talents or gifts that you mm. don't know that you have until somebody else tells you. I, I, and what what was that? I mean, you, you said your 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 practice was primarily in in the visual arts. Mm-hmm. What you know? Had you did did you sing as a child? Where where yeah? When it was at home, were you one of the ones around the piano or around? No, uh, nothing like nothing. that at all. If, no, if anything, Liam Conway, my brother, was considered and is an amazing, accomplished musician in the family, and I was the visual artist. But I was in Rome uh, working as a glassblower in the year uh, 2005-ish, living in a squat and uh, my Mexican flatmate constantly and consistently would tell me that I could sing because I would be singing around the apartment and eventually I started to believe her and (laughs) in social situations tried it out. And when I could see that people were responding positively, um, it gave me more confidence and and then after a while, I started to take pleasure in it. And sure, now it's it's a new path in my life that I'm enjoying immensely. Right, it's kind of, a, kind of extraordinary, to be honest, that uh, that you tell me that that side to the story. However, um, there you go. Um, it has worked for you clearly in terms of the album. I would I would hazard to say, maybe we could we could listen to one of the tracks on the album to, to just get a a sense of what exactly is involved in it. Different uh, uh, arrangements across the the, the various songs that. Are there, Chiara? Mm-hmm. But would you would you explain to me? Cuts on Tanimshin on Talkuch. It's the um, name of the whichever song it is. I can't remember yes. what track it is. But Cuts Brilesh and, and and give us a bit of a, an introduction into the the Aaron itself. So in Talchuch isn't an actual lament. I want to sprinkle the album with a few mm. so- different kinds of folk songs um, just to break up the the, the lament um, collection. So in Talchuch, initially I thought it had something to do with the cuckoo, but it doesn't because mm. the word cuckoo is in it. It, yes. means, it means violet, like uh, the flower. Oh, um, right. And on uh, is a beautiful praise song. Rhiannon Giddens talks about this a lot, that there were community singers years ago. It wasn't a profession per se, uh, but it was the community singer's role to write songs Songs that reflected a community back to itself. And Ansel Chuach is one of those songs. It's a, a song about a boatmaker called Podin Shoige, and she's um, the writer is uh, eulogising his craftsmanship and this boat's uh, beautiful buoyancy. It's it's a beautiful song. I learned Kathleen Maud's version of it. Um, yeah, it's a really, really buoyant song. It actually feels like I feel like a boat is 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 moving with waves. I sense. 
All right, OK, well, let's have a listen then to Chiara Conway and, and Sal Cook from her album Queen. Of Ansal Chuch from Chiara Conway and her album Queen and Chiara speaking to us from our Galway studios this evening. You're not going to tell me now that you went off and learned a whole load of wind instruments like uh, which sounds like a clarinet there as well. No, that's the wonderful Sean McElaine whom I had the honour of working with on the album. Sean uh, wrote all of the arrangements and he produced the album and he also played on it mm. um, and he will be joining us at the National Concert Hall on the 26th of October as part of the Tradition Now series along with the ensemble of musicians, um, uh, Alton O'Brien, Kevin Murphy from Slow Moving Clouds. Um, they also played on the album and mm. we had Francesco Teresi who played piano. Um, and for the tour, Anna Malarkey has joined us on electronics and piano as well. Yeah, because I was going to ask you about the electronics that are in there too. But there's something about, and I, did, I know it's something that Sean McCarlin has has a particular quality that he brings in, in the clarinet playing. I don't know which particular clarinet he's playing on, the, on that track. But there's a kind of a, an ancient, almost primitive sound, like, like the drone that we might associate with, you know, with traditional music uh, underneath something like a lament. There's something that the clarinet seems to bring to the to the to the songs in the various ways it's used across the album that has that primitive ancient uh, primitive ancient feel to it. Yeah, I would agree, and he, he he kind of mirrors or echoes the melody back very beautifully. I find, and in a, in a restrained way. Uh, one of the things that I love about Sean's playing is he allows a lot of space. Um, and yes, yeah, speaks back to to the traditional piece, which which brings it forward, brings it to somewhere new, which I really love. Now, you, you premiered the album at a special performance at the Glore Theatre in, in Ennis in, in County Clare. Uh, the performance was recorded and we have one of the pieces from that. I, I wondered when I was looking at this first, I thought, is, is this, a, is this a, a phonetic spelling of an Irish song? But I don't think it is. Jorolin, maybe you'd explain, maybe you'd say the word properly for me and tell me where it comes from. Yeah, of course. Uh, so Jorolin is written by a, an African singer called uh, Umo Sangari, uh, who's known as a, a Wasaloo singer. So she's the songbird of Wasaloo. Um, it's a political song. She's talking about, uh, you know, poverty and the word Jorolin means worry or anxiety. And she's speaking to those who have no power, or who have no voice and telling them not to worry. I came across the song uh, when I heard it being um, sung with Bella Fleck when she played sings it with Bella Fleck and I just fell in love with it it's so stunning and funnily enough when I when I perform this live a lot of people come up to me and say afterwards that was a gorgeous Irish song mm. uh, so I find this a lot when you sing in different languages people, uh, traditional songs in particular um, audience members think that sometimes you're singing in Irish and uh, if I may add um, recently somebody was saying to me that what she loved about the Queen performance as a whole was that she got to hear Irish in a new way 
Well, that's interesting to to, to put it in, in that particular context. And um, the instrumentation here as well, is it it's the people who worked with you on the album uh, that um, are involved for, the, here? for this piece, uh, for the premiere for Duralyn, we had Sean McElhane, Alton O'Brien and Kevin Murphy accompanying me. All right, well, let's, let's have a listen to a little section of that, Cara. And this is live from that uh, launch of the album at Glore in Ennis. That's a song called Jorolin and that are Jorolin uh, performed live at Glory in Ennis when Cara Conway was launching her album Queen and Cara in our Galway studios uh, this evening. Beautiful version of, of that song. I'm I'm guessing and hoping that you're going to tell me now that there's a plan to do a whole album of songs from around there different is. Of our different music songs. There is. <laughs> ah, good. Well then. Yes. Let me know when that one's there because I will definitely, <laughs> definitely want to, to listen to it. Just one final thing, Cara, that I think you might, you, you would, you certainly want to highlight is that um, 50% of the album sales will be donated to uh, charities. What particular charities do you want to donate to and why? Well, initially I was going to donate to charities that I was looking up online, but then I discovered that there was a community group in Canvara um, that were working with Ukrainian uh, refugees in Canvara in particular. So I've been donating directly to their credit union account um, and we'll continue to do so because it makes sense to me that there's something mm. happening locally as well on the ground um, so yes at the moment I'm still doing that Well Thanks a million Cara That's Cara Conway and the track or the album that we've been talking to is called Queen it's on CD and vinyl as well as digital format kiaraconway.bandcamp.com uh, Kiara is spelled C-E-A-R-A Kiara Conway She'll be playing the Mermaid Arts Centre in County Wicklow on Friday the 21st of October The Bell Table um, Lime Tree Theatre in Limerick on Saturday the 22nd of October and then on October the 26th she will be performed in, at the National Concert Hall as part of the Tradition Now series of concerts and you can find out full details there on nch.ie or again on Cara's website caraconway.ie The rise of authoritarianism the retreat of democratic freedoms increasing militarisation competing ideologies and the looming threat of greater war What period in history am I talking about? This week? Last week? No. Many of the issues that dominate the news cycle today are of course reminiscent of the late 1920s and early 1930s the settling the setting rather for the season uh, season four that is of Babylon Berlin comes to Sky Atlantic and Now TV 
uh, from this Friday, October the 17th. It's a German television series based on a series of noir novels by the German novelist Volker Kutscher. And it's the most expensive non-English language drama series ever created. Uh, Season four, as I say, about to hit our screens. Jen Gallen has had a peek and she's with me in studio now. And this explains something to me at any rate, Jen, because I was I was watching the, the first episode uh, of season four mm. today and I was thinking, yeah, you need to know a lot. You, you need to know a lot before you get stuck into season four, you don't definitely you? definitely do. I mean, and it's elaborate and um, there's a lot to it. And the thing about Babylon Berlin, I think it's a word of mouth sensation, really. And yeah. it, we know, like, there's too much TV these days. But when you hear somebody say, you know, have you seen this? It act, like, And a lot of people started to talk about it from season one onwards. So it's one of those shows, I think, it's all there on Now TV. It's all there on Sky Atlantic. You can watch it back. And yeah. if you wanted to do that before, you know, get stuck into this new season. I would highly encourage people to do it because it is TV at its at its best, at its finest. I really believe. Yeah. yeah so maybe you give us, and I, and I don't know, you know, <laughs> people who do. a lot who a lot of may have happened in seasons one, two, three. And we don't want to spoil it, but I suppose we need to know the basic setup of the guy mm. from Cologne who's coming to <laughs> yeah. Berlin because that's kind of the heart of the matter here, isn't it? Yeah, so it follows the fortunes of the ever-tormented Detective Inspector Gary Rath and he's played by the actor Volker Bruch. And in season one, he was transferred from Cologne to the Vice Squad in Berlin and it was, you know, around 1928, mm. we're talking. And by the second season, he'd worked his way into the Murder Squad and he was really tackling his demons, like uh, which he has many of. He has this deep guilt that we always see in flashbacks of leaving his brother to die in World War yeah. One. He suffers from PTSD. Um, he has these tremors that he's taken morphine for and trying to suppress them. And he also ends up shacking up with his brother's widow and like his, his nephew slash stepson yeah. arrives on his doorstep. So he's riddled with this self-hatred and he's, you know, trying to explore, trying to get rid of that and, and goes deep into these experimental psychological treatments and to deal with that kind of trauma. And he has this growing dependency on them rather than the morphine as the seasons go on. Yeah, because we're a little bit beyond Freud and all of that. But we are talking about a kind of a psychoanalysis that's going on Mm. here alongside all of the... I suppose the drama and the the thriller aspect because there's a there are a lot of threads that are getting pulled together. Yeah, you know the people from Russia who are there, people who may be plotting or not plotting against what may or may not be happening exactly. in Germany. And I think that's the greatest thing about it is you are seeing this happen throughout the seasons. You know, you are this basically historical you're a time traveller you know obviously we all know what is about to happen and what horrors are going to await this gang of people and then to watch that unfold year on year as the seasons go on it it is frightening it's sad you know it's never going to end up with a a nice wrap up at the end of all of this it's going to end up bad so when you see these things unfold and you're seeing you know history unfold in front of you obviously from uh, right now in season four we're at the New Year's Eve 1929 into 1930 and we, we know what awaits them but you know so you're seeing that in action but it's done in this amazingly subtle fashion. Nobody wakes up one day and is just, I'm a black-hearted Nazi. It's a slow burn. You see these characters, you are invested in these characters and you see how their mindsets can change, especially last season, season three was all about, you know, the deepening financial problems, the economic disaster ends with the Wall Street crash and obviously that effect on the Berlin Stock Exchange and the detrimental effect it had on the people. But you're also seeing from the very beginnings of it, just the poverty that people were living in and why this sentiment, that brewing feeling 
conversation uh, of, you know, hatred and the way that the essay came in and the way it was formulated. You see all that brewing in the background, which is a fascinating way of doing things. And the the parallels. I mean, I know everybody's mm. talking about the parallels of, you know, kind of 20, late 20s, early 30s, uh, 1920s, early 1930s rush. Uh, Europe yeah, and today yeah. but you know when when you lay it out like that it just it is frightening how many parallels there are definitely and that's why I feel that it is so gripping it's so absorbing with these huge themes that they manage to break down in manageable like in, in that kind of way where you're invested in say a character there's a character like Greta who is a fr- like she's a girl who is kind of a chambermaid mm. runaway who ends up getting involved with this man Fritz who convinces her to join them in he's in the German Communist Party but then as you can see as it goes on he goes into you know nationalism as well and you see her getting embroiled in a plot that it's a huge crime that ends up in the second season and it's a slow evolution everything is a slow drip drip and I think we're waiting to get to this season because we know what's around the corner and we know what's going to happen and uh, and how we're just waiting to see how this affects our heroes and mm. I think that's the main thing about it because you know it's not it sounds very brooding when you're talking about someone like you know Rath's character because he is this kind of anti-hero but then you also have his counterpart which is you know Lotta who is this young, enthusiastic, ambitious young woman who is a stenographist and she's a temp in the police department initially. But then she also is at night a sex worker. Um, And that just shows the flip side of what Berlin was at that time. And what Berlin still is in that vibrant kind of youthful city. But she wants to get ahead. And you see her, we've seen her go through the seasons. And so now she is ingrained in the police department. She's a proper part of them. Um, But you still see the challenges that are going to await her for sure. Yeah, and I I think we can probably safely guess that herself and Gary and Roth, something is going to happen there. Oh, there's an on again, <laughs> off again romance, yeah. of course. But like, I mean, which is buried within it, like, because it's not all, as yeah. I said, it's not all sadness. You have this gorgeous, there's these beautiful set pieces like that are choreographed with an inch of their life. In the, they're, they're, they're nightclub, nightclub scenes, scenes, you know, which yeah. are very much, you, you know, think cabaret. That's exactly. what you've got to think of in, there in those is terms. The definite nod to, you know, Fosse, but also it's just, a gritty authenticity to it that these it's it's not the gorgeous glamour of something like Gatsby it's not the empty glamour of that it's it's people like really dancing for their lives and dancing for survival and dancing for freedom and it's just that's beautiful and breathtaking to watch um, like some of the music in season one was like all done by Brian Ferry mm. so you can get the kind of there there is a mix of just trying to do a, a bit of modernism in it as well as to keep it traditional but those scenes are utterly outstanding and, yeah. and you can see the money jumping off the screen when you're watching those they, kind they of are, set they pieces. They are big, I mean, they're, they're, they're not, they're not in, in the kind of brash nature of Moulin Rouge but no. they're, they're in that scale, they're yeah. on that scale despite the fact that this is, this is for television. Um, the, the other thing is there is a scene, uh, Gary and Roth at this point, he, he, he's working in the Vice Squad mm. so he's, he's involved the first, very early on we see them raiding uh, a, a scene where a, a porn film has been made mm. and uh, Lottie has found herself detailing murder pictures of murders and just writing down the details for for the files and they bump into each other on the corridors and of course the pictures get all mixed up (laughs) there's a kind of black comedy in it as well there is a there is a lightness of touch in there too Mm. she said I hope you're working in the in the vice squad and he said well I hope you're working in the murder squad (laughs) you know there is a kind of a there's a a little flirtatious thing going on there definitely is and she I think Liv Lisa uh, Fries who plays Lotta is this 
amazing. She's just got this open face and that character Wonderful is just actress, so charismatic yeah. and she lights up the screen like and that's you know no exaggeration when she is you cannot help but you know be entranced by her and I think a lot of the humour and that gritty kind of she's tough she's streetwise she's a working class girl that wants to get ahead and I think that's where a lot of the humour comes from is her trying to inject herself and insert herself in as many situations as possible but it's also where the sadness comes from because you see in this season especially her little sister Tony they live in the slums they're you know who's also brilliant by the way I was going to ask great. you about her and they're sharing a room and you see in like the third season where you know a guy and, and we're talking about our rental situation here in Dublin it's, it echoes it so much there's a guy who's living in a flat and he takes the day shift so he sleeps all day because he works at night then he empties out the night and Lotta and her yeah. sister sleep there from the night to the morning and you know Tony is fed up with this and she ends up running away at the end of season three and then we see her at the beginning of season four we meet her again and she's in big trouble this this season yeah. is going have to be you, Have you watched all of season four how far into it have you got it? I haven't been unless so <laughs> all I can say, can. I, could, I watched as far as I can, and and just to say that we're building towards. Obviously, we know what we're building towards with, you know, the coming what what's going to happen. But it, the very start of it is right now. Yeah. The very start do, of that do, heart of darkness. Do you need to get? You know, if you're going to just suddenly dive into season four, do you need to do something beforehand? Do you think? I mean, I would if I was anybody. If I was interested, in, if, if this is piqued your interest, I would definitely go back and start watching it and gobble up the first couple of seasons and then. And start season Hold four. Off. Yeah, you want you want to get the backstory and yeah. all these characters yeah, no, for I sure. I felt that myself today. Yeah. I thought I need a bit more background mm. and I go back and have a look at some of the earlier <laughs> stuff for that very reason. Thanks very much for that, Jen. That's Jen Gannon previewing season four of Babylon Berlin comes to Sky Atlantic and Now TV from this Friday, October the seventeenth.